0: So this last week, I was just researching on a couple of different employment websites, uh, LinkedIn, Mashable, and a couple of others, Monster.com, uh, what it is that employers are looking for when it comes to resumes, headhunters, when they're, when they're scanning through hundreds, if not thousands, of resumes in a given setting in order to find the two or three qualified individuals that they may potentially interview uh, for their position, what are, what are some things that stand out to them? And what are the advice, what is the uh, recommendation that uh, they give to us in terms of uh, what we should be doing with our resume? Number one thing, number one thing, and I saw this across multiple different websites, multiple different headhunters, this is what they said. Don't exaggerate. Don't exaggerate the details on your resume. And what's interesting, that, that was under the list of things not to do. And what was interesting is I found on a lot of these same websites, under things that you ought to do, they said, make sure you draw attention and emphasize those accomplishments that you've done that are the best. So don't exaggerate, but make sure everybody can see just how great this particular thing is that you do. And so I found that there was an incredible tension there. But generally speaking, the headhunters, the recruiters, they all say uniformly that an embellished skill set will be discovered sooner or later. The truth Always comes out. If you're saying you're capable of doing something on your resume and then you show up for your first day of work and you're struggling, that just doesn't look good. And that's, uh, that was their first thing that they mentioned. The second thing that they mentioned, lack of attention to detail. Lack of attention to detail. Such as different fonts between your cover letter and your, your resume. Now, I have no idea what that has to do with a job. And neither did they, but they said they just hated it. So if they found between cover letter and resume, different font or different typeset, they would just chuck it. So that's just a word of wisdom. Apparently you need to keep it all uniform. I'm not sure why, but that's just how they prefer it. But the one that I found really interesting, this is what they said. And, and uh, I can remember as a, as a high school student applying and including some of this sort of stuff with my resumes going back to high school. They said, number one, never share any uncomfortably personal details. Now, they're not talking about whether or not you've been divorced three times or any of that sort of thing. No, no, no. They said, point blank, we don't want to see a picture of you. We don't, know the date of, we don't want to know the date of your birth. In this day and age, we'd rather not even know your gender. And I thought that was Interesting. Here's what they said. There are legal concerns here. Recruiters learn to turn up, tune out certain things like marital status, family status, whether or not a person has children, reference to health or medical issues, but they definitely don't want to see pictures. They don't want to know your gender, and including all of these types of things, though common in many resumes, many CVs and resumes today, is not something that is advised currently because it makes companies liable to lawsuits for hiring practices that may or may not involve discrimination with regards to those types of details. And I thought, wow, we've come to a strange new place as a society where when you apply for a job, it's best that you don't advertise your gender so that you're not discriminated against. They don't want to discriminate against you. They don't want to know those types of things. I just never would have thought that that was the place we come to. and yet. Here we are. When you come to the scriptures and you're looking at what the apostles set forth in terms of choosing men to serve in positions of leadership within the church, you better know the details. In fact, that seems to be exactly the word of encouragement that is given to us from Acts chapter 6. The apostles make the statement, they say, we can't lay aside the preaching and the teaching of God's word in order to wait on tables. That's what they say at the tail end of verse 2. And you'll know there, though the translation will render it wait tables or serve tables, the word is diakonos or diakone. It's from the Greek verb diakoneo, to serve or to wait on tables. And that is the word from which we get our modern-day office that we have in most churches, known as the office of the deacon. Or sometimes it'll be referred to as the diaconate. That's where this word comes from. At its root, it means to serve uh, or to wait on tables. That's the idea that is going on here. Um, and though that's what it literally means, we shouldn't overly restrict its usage to think that all that a deacon can do is to serve food. We find throughout the early church... Uh, in multiple places, they served in a number of different ministries, but there was a particular focus on taking care of the widows and the orphans and the, the weaker members of the society within the church and It did appear that their focus was primarily on meeting the material physical well being the, the physical material needs of those individuals within the church, whereas issues such as spiritual care, preaching and teaching the word of God these types of things were left to the elders. We see that de- distinction sort of laid out for us here in Acts chapter 6. The apostles say we have to give ourselves to the preaching and the teaching of the word. We need other people to take care of the distribution of the food in order to look after the widows. We need men to serve in this capacity. We need seven guys. Guys, choose for yourselves seven guys. Well, what are the requirements? What are the criteria? When we think of this church, remember this is a huge church by this point in the book of Acts. We're talking at least 15,000 people and that's a conservative number. This is a really large church, probably beyond that many people. And so... I find it impressive that they said, out of this group of 15, 20,000 people, we just need seven guys. Just looking for seven. Now, all of you find those seven. Well, we need some guidance here, don't we? How do we weed our 15,000 down to the seven of us who are going to take good care of our widows? And here's what they say. Pick out from among yourselves, verse 3, seven men of a good reputation full of the spirit, and of wisdom. Now, what I'd like to suggest to you is that these three things are not independent of each other. These three qualities that we're looking for as we consider individuals to serve as deacons or deaconesses, these three qualities are not independent of each other. To understand what is being said here regarding a reputation, to understand what is being said here regarding the spirit or wisdom, we need to know that the kind of reputation, they say a good repute, the kind of reputation that these apostles are saying the church should look for is connected to whether or not these individuals will also have the Holy Spirit. And it's also connected to whether or not these individuals act in wisdom. Now, a number of years ago, when I was still in Texas, I was asked to sit in on the search committee that was looking for a youth pastor... And so we had a number of different individuals apply, and of course we went through all these different resumes, we looked at all these different things, education, we looked at their uh, theological positions, and we considered a great many different points of data, and of course we whittled it down to two or three that we really liked, and I was charged with the responsibility to call references on a couple of these guys, and so I did. I phoned up one man in particular, and I began to talk to him, and of course when it comes to calling references, you're looking specifically for whether or not the reference has good things to say about them, and what kinds of good things will the reference say. And so I began to discuss with this individual on the phone. I said, tell me about youth pastor X. We'll call him Bob. His name wasn't Bob. And I'll say, what, do you, what can you tell me about Bob as a youth pastor? Would he be good for us here at our particular church? And he said, oh yeah, he's great with kids. He loves kids. He's, he's always hanging around kids. He, he has a lot of patience. He has uh, just a, a way about him where he can calm a room and he can help kids to see the bigger picture. And he just does a fantastic job. I said, that's great, that's perfect. You know, I'm hitting off all my little ticky boxes on my checklist of things that I'm looking for. And then I said to the individual I was talking to on the phone, I said, um, how long have you been going to church with this guy? And he said, excuse me? I said, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm assuming uh, you do go to church with him, do, or do, don't you? And he says, uh, no, no, actually I don't. And that caught my attention. So I said, oh, Did you used to go to church with him? To which he said, No, I don't go to church. So I said, Huh. Do you believe in Jesus? To which he then said, No. No, I don't. To which I then said, Huh. (laughs) Can I tell you about Jesus? And he said, "Uh, Sure. Yeah, I'd like to hear about Jesus. So I ended up sharing the gospel on the phone with a reference for a youth pastor. He listened very politely. We discussed for some time afterwards. He took it all in, and uh, he said, "Okay, well, that's uh, that's good. I, I appreciate that." So "Would you like to? Uh, would you like to receive Christ?" He says, oh, "No, I'd like to just think on this for a while." And I, I just, in that moment, I stepped back and said, "Can I just ask you a question? Uh, we're talking about youth minister Bob here. Um, I'm sure he's talked to you about this before. You are listed as a reference. I'm sure you guys are close friends." He says, "Yeah, we're we're pretty close." He says, You know, Bob has never talked to me about Jesus. Now, did Bob have a great reputation? You tell me. In the eyes of this man, his reference, yeah, he was a great guy. Great with kids, patient, just a wonderful teacher. What was the subject matter? No idea. Which then led to me pondering how does he know he's a great teacher? He's never been to church. He's never seen this man with kids. He's never seen this man teaching the Bible to kids. Now, he had all kinds of wonderful, positive, encouraging, uplifting things to say about youth minister Bob. Bob rightly could be described as having a good reputation. But this really, this whole episode should call forth in our minds a more profound, a deeper question. When the Bible speaks of a good reputation, what is it talking about? In the book of Proverbs, don't don't flip there, just listen. It says in Proverbs 22.1, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. Favor, notice that word, favor is better than silver or gold. Now the idea is that if you have a good name, people know you by your name, and it's it's commending it. It's saying to have a good name is important. Because to have a good name, that's better than gold and silver. The next passage tells you why. If you have a good name, then that means you're going to have favor. That is, people are going to listen to you, you will have sway, you will have influence. And it goes on to say, favor to have that influence over other people as a result of your reputation. To have that influence, that is better, the scripture says, than silver or gold. It's better than wealth. It's better than money. If people trust you, if you have that good reputation, you can, the Bible says, influence them. How many of us, though, let's ask the question, how many of us look at our reputation and our name as a thing which we leverage to influence others. That seems to be the primary reason as far as the scriptures are concerned for why we have a reputation at all. In fact, Jesus' teaching is not only will we have a reputation but his assumption as our king is that we will have used that reputation aggressively in order to tell people about him. In fact, Jesus' idea of a good reputation is that we won't have the whole wide world saying positive things about us. We'll have a lot of people saying positive things about us, but we should, in fact, have at least a handful of people saying negative things about us. Listen to what Christ says, Matthew 5. And I'm going to read you two different Beatitudes, one from Matthew 5 and the other one from Luke 6. Matthew 5. Blessed are you when others revile you And persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus says happy times are here when people revile you. This word means that they're talking bad about you on account of Jesus. Luke 6 this is the same saying, but it's taught from the negative. The positive is you're blessed when people speak ill of you on account of the name of Jesus. The negative is goes like this. Woe to you. Woe to you. When all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets before. Now, When Peter says to the church in Acts chapter 6, guys, we need some men with a good reputation. You notice that one of the guys they choose is a guy named Stephen. He's the first one mentioned. And he's even described in this particular passage in Acts chapter 6. It says they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the spirit. And guess what happens later in the same chapter? Stephen is stoned to death because he's preaching the name of Christ. Stephen, if he is to meet the modern Canadian definition of a good reputation, does not fare well because he ends up being murdered by a whole crowd of people using rocks. Knowing this, when we hear Peter's instructions to the congregation... You guys need to choose out for yourselves a couple of guys, seven guys, who have a good reputation. What he means by good reputation is not that the world universally applauds and claps for these people. No, whatever he means by that definition of good reputation, it has to be understood as interdependent and interwoven with these other two characteristics, these other two qualities, one of which is he needs to be full of the Spirit and he needs to have wisdom. So reputation, right off the get-go, these are men who have good character, absolutely. These are men who stand head and shoulders in the church. We could even say these are men who are righteous, who are known for their righteousness. But it would be a mistake to say that these are men who are universally applauded. Because that's just not what we see when we look at the Word. Going to the next qualification, he says... Guys choose from yourselves men who are who have a good reputation and who are full of the Holy Spirit. Now first let's define our terms here. When we say full of the Holy Spirit, what are we talking about? Of course we know that the Holy Spirit is a gift which is given to us. It is the third person in the Trinity, the third person of God, and it is given to us upon that moment in which we trust in the Lord. We receive the Holy Spirit. This thing come this this person this this God himself comes into our heart and he begins to take control and he begins to clean up our lives. That's how we Baptists tend to talk about it. Listen to what the scripture says. Don't flip there, just listen. Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there's no law. We hear that. We've probably memorized that. We repeat that back and forth to each other. This is the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience. We go through the whole list. We often forget the second part. And, oh, there's that conjunction. And. So all of these things are true. Love, joy, peace, patience, and that one second part of the verse we don't like to talk about. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. To have the Holy Spirit in our lives, is not simply that we are people who have love, joy, peace, patience, and the whole gamut of fruit. That's a part of it. But what Paul is saying is that people who have the Holy Spirit in their lives are people who, under the control of the Holy Spirit, are crucifying those former passions, those former addictions. They are laying aside those former idols which they once so tightly clung to and cherished, And in the releasing of those idols, those former passions, they are keeping their gaze on Christ. And in that transaction of letting go of the old, crucifying the old under the power of the Holy Spirit, and looking to Jesus, in that transaction, they're finding love, joy, peace, patience, so forth and so on. When Paul talks about being filled with the Spirit, he talks about it as though it's an ongoing, continuing process from Ephesians. I, I do actually want you to flip there, if you would. Ephesians chapter 5. This is crucial because our reputation, whatever it may be, either here at First Baptist Church or as the world will speak of us, our reputation needs to be people who will submit to the Holy Spirit. So, this is an important aspect to recognize. Ephesians 5, I want you to look with me in verse 18. The Apostle Paul instructs the church at Ephesus, he says, do not get drunk with wine. Now here is uh, an analogy. Obviously, you drink wine, you become intoxicated. You drink wine, you come under the influence of alcohol, you lose control. You come under the control of the alcohol. He says, don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But, now here's the adversative, to the contrary. Rather than giving yourself over to the control of alcohol, he says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. All right? Be filled with the Holy Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And the passage goes on to give a couple of examples. It says husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and died for the church. It says wives are to submit to their husbands as the church submits to the Lord Jesus. It says children are to obey their parents in the Lord. And it goes on to talk about slaves honoring their masters as they would honor Christ. And you'll know the repeated refrain in all of these different examples is that Christ is the focus. Loving our wives as Christ loves them. Submitting to our husbands as the church submits to Christ. Children obeying the Lord. Obeying their parents in the Lord. This is a a repeated refrain such that we understand there is a call in this this chapter of of Ephesians for submission. Now all of that comes back to what Paul says here at the tail end of chapter 5. In which he says, being filled with the Holy Spirit looks like this. It looks like a worshiping person. That's what he says. Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. A spiritual person, a person seeking to be filled with the Holy Spirit, is a worshiping person. Number two, a person seeking to be filled with the Holy Spirit is a fellowshipping person. Look what he says. Be filled with the Holy Spirit, addressing, notice, the one another. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Number three, a spiritual person is a person who is grateful whatever comes. He goes on to say, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. I understand that difficult circumstances come into all of our lives. But whatever we're facing, newsflash, it may take us by surprise, but it did not sneak past God. When we experience tragedy and difficulty, when we enter into trial, let's look at how we're responding. And that'll tell you if you're really submitting to the Holy Spirit. The exhortation here is to be filled with the spirit, addressing one another, that is fellowship, in song and worship, that is worship, giving thanks, that is gratitude, and the last but most crucially, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. A spirit-filled person is a person who is practicing submission To God ordained authority. A spirit filled person is somebody who is submitting to Christ as his first or her first authority. And then, out of reverence for Christ, is submitting to the other authorities. Now, I want to be careful. We submit to earthly authorities only insofar as such submission does not lead us into sin. For we are never permitted to obey any government authority or any other human authority if doing so leads us into rebellion against our king. Such a thing is never to happen. However, the scripture says a spirit-filled person is a person who submits. When we look at these seven guys in Acts chapter 6, they say they've got to have a good reputation, They've got to be full of the Spirit. Well, what does that really look like? It looks like they were looking for men who loved worshiping Jesus, who enjoyed fellowshipping with the body, who could always find God's hand in whatever difficult situation they encountered. And above all of that, they were humble servants ready to submit in order to honor and glorify Christ. And last but not least, they were full of wisdom. Turn with me to Colossians. Our final passage is going to be Colossians chapter 4. Wisdom always has to do with relationships. And the first relationship is the one that we have with God. The sages of old wrote in the book of Proverbs that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. This is where it starts. Understanding that there is a God that he does in fact own everything, that he is sovereign over all. And recognizing that we, we should revere him. That our life decisions should be made in such a way that we glorify him. So don't miss that. Wisdom has to do with behavior that is grounded in a knowledge of God, and seeks to obey God. Wisdom is courage in righteousness. It doesn't just have to do with the relationship that we have with God the Father. It then extends to the relationships that we have with each other. But ultimately, what wisdom is about is acting in a manner with each other before the Lord that is glorifying to the Lord. Now, do you know what relationships depend on more than anything else? Words. The things we say. I remember when we first came here to uh, Canada 10 years ago, uh, at that time, the bridge, we would hand out water bottles to people in the park on Canada Day. And uh, I think uh, many churches across the denomination, the Canadian National Baptist Convention at that time were doing this. It, uh, we would uh, participate in whatever the Canada Day celebrations were, and we'd hand out water bottles, and it was, it was great. It, we had specialized little labels printed that were put on the water bottles that had the name of our church and our contact information website, and uh, a little verse, John 3.16. And we would hand these water bottles out to people, and uh, people would just say, hey, thanks, I appreciate that. And they, they would walk into the park, they would grab the water bottle, and they would be on their way. And we must have given away 10,000 water bottles over the course of four or five years. I mean, we gave away tons and tons and tons of water bottles. And do you know what the problem with that was? There's nothing wrong with serving our neighbors by giving them water. But the problem was that we told ourselves that we were expressing love to them by giving them water without using our words. If you walk into a store say Costco, and you're pushing your little buggy down the aisle. You're looking for that really great deal on that, you know, 100-pack of chicken or whatever it is, you know, that super bargain. There's a guy standing there, and he gives you a little sample. Is the first thought in your mind, this man loves me and wants me to go to church with him? (laughs) No? You didn't think that? Well, why? I mean, he gave you a free little thing in, of food and a little, you know, doily, right? A little cupcake thing. Yummy. And it was good, wasn't it? I like most of the stuff they hand out there. I have never walked away from Costco thinking, having had this little cupcake thing of whatever the sample is, I have never walked away feeling like that person just loved me. I've gone to Riverside Park in which there are innumerable nonprofit organizations and different community organizations and different societies here in Kamloops that are handing out all kinds of stuff, all kinds of stuff, T-shirts and what have you. And I have never felt whenever I've received something from any of these different community organizations or nonprofits that they loved me, cared for my soul, and wanted me to know the God that they worshiped. There's nothing wrong with giving someone a bottle of water on a hot day in which they're thirsty. That is, in fact, love. But we deceive ourselves when we say that we have loved as Christ has commanded us to love if we can placate our knowledge that we're called to evangelize by doing nothing more than handing a bottle of water and letting that be the end of it. That is not wise. Paul's statement regarding wisdom Wisdom is learning, in his perspective, how to have a relationship with someone using words and having at the center of those words the inescapable, unmistakable message that there's a God in heaven who died for me, and I didn't deserve it. And guess what? He died for you, and you don't deserve it either. Look at what he says here in Colossians. Look at what he says. Colossians chapter 4, we'll pick it up in verse 3. This is a prison letter. You'll notice he's writing this letter to the Church of Colossae from jail. Does Paul have the greatest reputation right now? Well, not in the eyes of the Roman officials who've locked him up. Nevertheless, nevertheless, From jail, writing to the church at Colossae, he says, quote, At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. Now, I think Paul has a great reputation. I hear that he's in jail for Jesus, and I think, man, you've got courage. Man, hallelujah, you are willing to go the distance for our Lord and King. Do his jailers think that? Some of them actually do. We read on in the book of Acts. But he's still in jail for a reason, and he's still going to be executed at the end of his life. And surely those who order his execution do not share his view or his opinion or his high regard for the Lord. He says, on account of which I am in prison. Now, here's what he says. You need to pray for me, for the gospel, that I may make it clear Which is how I ought to speak. He goes on. I ought to speak this way. Now look at what he says to the church at Colossae. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Making the best use of the time. That verb there, making the best use of the time, it literally, it comes from a Greek verb that literally means to buy up. It's as though he's saying, you know, take it up, get the bargain. You've got a moment, you've got some time, buy up those bargain moments, those bargain opportunities. Make the most of that time. Walking in wisdom towards outsiders. He says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Now I want you to just step back out of the text here for a second. And understand the apostle's heart. I tell people about, this is what he's saying. I tell people about Jesus for a living. It's gotten me in jail. Pray for me. Not that I would get out of jail. That's not what he says. Pray for me. That a door would be open to the word, that I would be more bold in proclaiming the word, that I would make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Notice the moral imperative he gives there. It's how I ought to speak. Now let me talk about you. You also need to walk in wisdom. You see the transition there? You guys pray for me. I need to be bold with the gospel. You also need to be wise. You need to be wise, making the most of every opportunity. Let your speech always be gracious and seasoned with salt. Well, what do you think he's talking about, church? When we go out of these church doors, we should always be talking about our walk with Christ. We should always be talking about the ways innumerable in which he has blessed us. We should daily in our places of business with our neighbors and our cul-de-sacs, wherever we are, be talking about the many blessings we receive I mean, there's a song, count them one by one, and you can't even come to the end of it all if you really try to think of all the ways in which the Lord has blessed you. And what Paul is saying here is you need to always be speaking in such a way to every person, seasoning your speech with salt, letting it pour forth grace. This is wisdom. Because that's how you make the best use of the time. Because one of those people is going to ask you to elaborate or to clarify. When Peter says to the church in Jerusalem, in Acts chapter 6, choose seven guys who have a good reputation, who are full of the Spirit, and who walk in wisdom. We are mistaken to take each of these things and to look at them in isolation. They're interwoven, and when we look at them all together, what we find is we find men who love Christ, who try to model their lives after Jesus, and who also try, whatever others might say about them, to tell the world about the blessings they have received from the Lord. This is a deacon. Those kind of men, they do not mind doing whatever trivial sort of uh, tedious task that is asked of them if it means that the gospel can go further Uh, just last week I came out of my office on a Wednesday evening it was about 7.30 I came out uh, music team was getting ready to, to rehearse for worship Sunday worship and lo and behold there's Joshua Denhollander he just had a baby two days before. I'm like, "Hey, Joshua Den Hollander, how's it going? Congratulations!" He's like, "Thanks." And then I, I stop myself, and it occurs to me he just had a baby. Like I'm congratulating him. I said, "Den Hollander, what are you doing here?" He says, "Oh, I, I'm here to balance the uh, church accounts, to do the, the treasury work." And here's a guy that just had a child. And yet he loves the word. Do you think he gets kicks and giggles? Do you when you balance your checkbook? Come on now. Of course not. He doesn't do this because it's just super exciting for him. He does it because it unleashes the word to go further. I came in about three weeks ago. Uh, I was going to make a crack. It was the Sunday that the time change happened. And I was gonna stand in the pulpit and crack a joke, hey look, some the clocks aren't set back, you know, we're gonna be here for an extra hour. How about that? And of course, I looked at the clock at the back of the room, and it had already been changed. John Dykstra, our deacon of Ground Building and Grounds, had come in either on that Saturday afternoon or that early that Sunday morning. And he'd already set it back. I know it 's hard to believe you 'd think he 's trying to make sure we get out of here on time, but he really does love the word he does he really does he 's somewhere right now counting money don 't tell him I said that made that joke out, but John Dykstra, man does all kinds of things around here, I mean more than I could possibly list, and his wife, Dale as well, just have a servant 's heart. They love the Lord. They give for the Lord. We ordered chairs. The company that we ordered the chairs from to replace the pews, they said four-week delivery time. I said, great, that's perfect. They'll arrive right when we're yanking the pews up. That was on a Monday. On a Tuesday, I got a phone call from the shipping company. It says, we've got the load coming to Camloops. It'll be there tomorrow, Wednesday. no. That's not going to work for me. I need four more weeks before the carpet comes. I got, you know, like I don't what do you want me to do here? Put out an email. Guys, I need to unload about 250 chairs into Dr. Tom's garage. I know you all have jobs, you work your 9 to 5. Can you like take a sick morning or I don't know, like something and come and help me? Can you call in sick from your real job to come help me lift chairs? That's kind of what I'm asking them to do, right? Dustin Savage and Nolan Pasteur and Joe Riley showed up. These guys have—well, Joe's retired, but you know these other guys—they have jobs. And Joe has—Joe's always doing something. I don't know what, always building on something. So it's not like he wasn't busy either. I love these men. I mean, time would fail me to tell you about Dr. Tom. These are great guys. About 18 years ago, I think it was, when I first sensed the call of God on my life to preach the word. If you had told me then there's going to be nine guys who are going to sit with you, who are going to help you, who are going to help you preach the word, I would have laughed and said, You're crazy. And more and more as I look around that table at these men, these amazing men. Eighteen years ago, I always said, nobody wants to help me. That's ridiculous. Who am I? I'm nobody. And over the years, that opinion is still true. And I wouldn't have it any other way. Who am I? I'm a nobody. The reason these men serve is because they love Jesus and they want to see his word proclaimed to the ends of the earth. As we consider deacons in the future, as we think about who we will choose to lead us next year, next decade, let's look at their reputation. Let's look at how well they are submitting themselves to the Holy Spirit Let's see how they have grown in wisdom towards outsiders in terms of sharing their faith. Let's remember that these are not to be looked at in isolation, but together. But above all, let us have men who love the word of God. As the scripture says, the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. May that be true for us here in Cantlubs. Pray with me, church. Father, we say thank you. I say thank you for the deacons that you have given to us. I say thank you, Lord, for Dr. Tom and James Casson and Josh Den Hollander. I say thank you for Nolan Pasteur and Dustin Savage and Joe Riley. I say thank you, Lord, for Pastor Ryan. I say thank you for John Dykstra, Lord. Thank you for these men. Thank you for the blessing that they are. Lord, I pray that you would bless them as they have served and sacrificed and given in order for your word to go forth to the ends of the earth. And I pray even now, Lord, for the the young men in the room who aspire to greatness. I pray for those who are coming up, even now, in the school, in the academy, that you would show them the path of glory, that they would sense a call in your life to lift high the name of your son, that they would aspire to be men of character, have a commitment to you. Would you do that, we pray? Would you do that in us, Lord? We ask in Christ's name. Amen.